Because we're about halfway through a nine-week study that we're calling Mystery uh, Revealed, and it's a study of the book of Colossians. And four weeks ago, uh, when we started this study, I encouraged you to try to, at least once a week, read through uh, this pretty small but significant book uh, all during this series. And uh, it's pretty easy, considering uh, that there are only four chapters and actually just 94 verses and only about 2,200 words, and so not a uh, great big assignment. But I think you'll find as you read it over and over again, it will continue just to kind of feed your soul and nourish your mind uh, through all of that. And you know, the Word of God today comes in so many different helpful translations as well as creative formats that are accessible to everybody. I'd always encourage you to make sure you read the Bible for yourself. Uh, Don't take someone else's word for it. Um, You need to know what the Bible says for yourself because sometimes people have actually mistaken the Bible to say something that it doesn't say. Uh, And the consequences of that can be disastrous. For example, there was this new monk that arrived at a monastery, and he was assigned to helping the other monks monks copying the text of Scripture by hand. And he noticed, since he was new, that they were copying from the copies instead of copying from the original text. And so this monk went to the head monk to share his concern about this practice. And he correctly pointed out that if there was ever an error in the first copy, that that error would be carried over into every other copy. And the head monk kind of scratched his head and said, well, we've been copying from copies for centuries, you know, but you do make a good point. And so the head monk took one of the copies and he went down into the cellar to check it against an actual original copy. Well, hours went by and nobody heard anything from the head monk. And so finally, one of the other monks said, I'm going to go down and check on him. And when he went downstairs, he heard sobbing uh, from the back of the cellar. And when he found the monk, he was leaning over one of the original texts, weeping intensely. And when asked what was wrong, the head monk looked up sadly at him and said, some idiot forgot the R. He left out the R. The text says celebrate, not celibate. (laughs) That's a terrible mistake. That's why you want to read it for yourself. Make sure you read it for yourself. Well, you know, um, I appreciate Pastor Dave leading us the last couple of weeks, doing an excellent job covering the topics of the mystery of Christ, and then last week, the mystery of forgiveness, and really setting us up for where we need to go today. It was also strategic timing for me, because two weeks ago, I had major mouth surgery on my lower jaw. I had seven teeth pulled, three implants put in place, and a new set of artificial teeth inserted. And so I'll just warn you this morning, I'm still kind of learning how to use these things, and so if I talk a little funny, just grant me a little grace from that. If you really want to make me self you know, conscious, come up to me after the service and say, hey, can I see your teeth? And just stare at my teeth. That'll, that'll really help me with, the, with that. Um, and while I'm glad to be back, uh, I know I've got my work cut out for me today because we're going to discuss something that seems to be kind of ingrained into the human psyche. And it literally requires intentional effort and directed thought in able to get past it and to grow around it. And it's something called religion. 
And if we're not careful, all of us are susceptible to it. Now, last week, uh, Pastor Dave helped us to really self-identify with a couple of different categories. Uh, the first category with those who care about how things work, and then the other was about those who don't care about how things work, they just want them to work. Uh, this week, I'd like us to self-identify as well, but this week, I'd like us to identify, self-identify either as rebels or rule keepers. And rebels, if you're one of those, you're the ones who believe that the rules are for everyone else to keep, but not necessarily uh, for you. Uh, rule keepers, on the other side, hand, are very conscientious about following the rules, making sure they don't step out of line. And when they do step out of line, they're usually very remorseful. So let me just ask this morning, and this is always the tentative kind of group, how many of you self-identify as a rebel? They're afraid to raise their hand in church like, oh, God will see that. Don't worry, he already knows. Okay, we got a few of the rebels here uh, today. Um, how many of you would identify uh, as a rule keeper? We had a lot more rule keepers in every service. And I just want to say that's a, that's a good thing, but don't automatically assume that you are better fitted to be a follower of Christ uh, because you're a rule keeper, because that can sometimes make it harder for you to be able to accept grace into your life. And so let me just say there are some potential pitfalls with either one of these orientations uh, if we don't keep them in the proper perspective. Because if you're a rebel, uh, then you're likely to pretty much rebel against religion, which also may keep you away from faith in Christ as well. And if you're a rule keeper, uh, you're more likely to be drawn to religion, neither of which is where any of us want to be. We want to live in a relationship with God made possible by his grace. Now, if you remember, this letter that we're studying to the Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul to a group of believers that he did not personally know, but he felt very connected to them uh, because of an individual named Epaphras, who Paul likely led to Christ and then discipled to become a church planner. And Epaphras had started this new church in Colossae, and they were now in need of some significant spiritual direction. So Paul pins this letter. Now, our text for today from Colossians chapter 2, so if you have your Bibles, you want to go ahead and open up to that, you can. It's also going to be up on the screen. We're going to be reading from verses 16 to 23, and uh, the, our text today begins with the word, therefore. And I would just encourage you, remember when you come across that word, anytime you see it, it's a sign uh, that there's an important connection between what's just been said and what's going to be said. And there's the connection that you want to really listen to and look for. So uh, go ahead and open your Bibles uh, to that because what we're going to talk about today is what's just been said is that the work of Jesus Christ on the cross completely canceled our sin debt, making it possible for us to be reconciled to God. And then Paul knew he needed to move on to this next part, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. So let's go ahead and read. Notice it starts, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow uh, of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection from the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. 
These rules have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use uh, and are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Today, the topic we're going to look at, uh, we've entitled The Mystery of the Law, The Mystery of the Law. What was and is the purpose of the law in a believer's life? And are we still bound to it now that grace has arrived? That was always a question. And if grace has taken over, then why did God establish the law in the first place? Now, to help us understand this, Paul has just talked about grace. He's getting into the law, and he actually issues several warnings, two of which we're going to look at this morning. And so the first warning that Paul says we need to be on the lookout for is to don't let religious people guilt you into law orientation. Make sure you don't let religious people guilt you into law orientation. Now, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble this morning, but are you aware that there are religious people in the church today? Did you know that? There are religious people in the church today. And the reason that I know there's religious people in the church is because there have always been religious people in church. In fact, we've had religious people in the church for the last 2,000 years. There were religious people back in in the church in Colossae. That's why Paul was addressing this issue. And the problem with religious people is that they love to enforce religious rules. And see, a law orientation is one that centers around religiously keeping the law in order to achieve a right standing with God. And that's not how we achieve a right standing with God. And so Paul says in verse 16, therefore, don't let anyone judge you. Don't I'm trying to guilt you into that. Uh, by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Now, I mentioned Sabbath day. Those who had the most difficult time reprogramming themselves from a law orientation to grace were those who came from a Jewish background. Because not only did the Jews have the Ten Commandments, the Jewish law actually also contained around 613 commandments. And following the 613 commandments would have been a challenge enough, but over time, Jewish religious leaders had begun to slowly add more of these laws. Now, the original intent of these additions was to help clarify the law, but it ended up adding many layers of complicated regulations that they were required to keep. And so the Pharisees not only tried to follow the 613 commandments of the Mosaic law, but literally thousands of additional man-made commandments that were created just to clarify the original 613. So for example, in the Mosaic Law, one of the commandments was to keep the Sabbath. The principle God gave was you need to take a break, take a day of rest, take a day just to focus on your inner self, your spiritual self, and, and worship God. Which means, though, that the Jews were supposed to quit their work on Saturdays. But to clarify this, the Jewish scholars actually created 39 separate categories classified as work. And within those 39 categories, there were actually lots of subcategories. And that meant following the rule of not working on the Sabbath literally uh, included thousands of subrules to follow. And they were down to the, to the detail, down to how many steps one person could take on a day. 
even how many letters you could write on the Sabbath. You could write one letter, but it became work if you started that second letter. You could even erase one letter, but it became work if you started to erase more than one letter. Now, some things were obviously work, such as plowing and sowing and reaping, but they just added to it, and it included such things as kindling a fire. If you needed to make a fire, that was work. Or when, if you needed to put it out, uh, that was considered work. Many of them had sheep that were around them, and so obviously shearing sheep, washing wool, spinning, uh, weaving, that was work, but they narrowed it down to you could make one loop, uh, but not two. You could weave one thread, but not two. You could separate one thread. I guess you wouldn't separate one thread from another because there's just one thread, but you couldn't tie anything or untie anything. They had to have slip-on shoes on the Saturday because they weren't going to tie their shoes if they were going to put those on on that particular day. Uh, it was commanded or it's considered work if you were to transport an object from a private domain to a public domain. You could carry stuff around your house all day, but as soon as you stepped outside, you were only allowed to take four steps carrying something. If you took that fifth step, all of a sudden it became work. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. These guys, they were, they were wild making laws. Now we sit back there and kind of maybe laugh at that a little bit, but lest we are amused at the absurdity some of their laws, I, I went searching and I found some crazy laws that are still on the books in the United States today. And so we really don't have much over the Jews. Did you realize that in Alabama, it's illegal to wear a fake mustache that causes laughter in the church. And so any of you guys out there with your fake mustache today, make sure you take that off if anybody laughs at it because that's illegal. In Alaska, it's illegal to wake a sleeping bear to take a photo. Now, I'm not really sure why that has to be a, a, a rule because uh, I'm assuming if you want to wake up a bear to take his picture, you deserve what you get at that particular point. Um, in Arizona, honestly, it's on the books. It's illegal for donkeys to sleep in bathtubs. They can sleep on your bed if you want them to, but don't you take them into the bathroom and let them crawl in that bathtub to take a nap. That's not legal. In Arkansas, it's illegal to mispronounce Arkansas. So make sure when you're there, you don't say it wrongly or you'll get in trouble. In Connecticut, a pickle cannot legally be considered a pickle unless it bounces. How many of you, when you buy your pickles, you take them home and let them bounce on the floor, see if that's really a pickle or not? Some of you are going to go home and probably do that today. In Georgia, it's illegal to keep an ice cream cone in your back pocket on Sundays. I was like, what am I going to do today with my ice cream cone? I usually always put it in my back pocket on Sunday. And one final one, in Minnesota, it's illegal to cross the state line with a duck on top of your head. So don't you sneak out of Minnesota wearing a duck on the top of your head. Those are laws on our books. Now that seems kind of foolish and it really, it really is. But you know, in the church, we've, we've gotten into some kind of legalistic things sometimes. I'm just going to warn you uh, right now. I'm going to kind of quit preaching and start meddling just a little bit. Cause I remember when I was growing up, church had a lot of rules connected with it. See, back when I was growing up, Sunday was a day when you put on, you know, your Sunday clothes and you made sure you didn't get dirty on Sundays. You stayed clean. You never went to the store on Sunday, and you didn't have much trouble with that because most stores weren't even open, or you didn't go out to eat somewhere because less some waitress or somebody's gonna have to you know, work to prepare you food, even though it seems like mom worked awful hard to prepare food for us at home. Uh, you didn't do any housework on Sunday or even wash the car. Sometimes you weren't even allowed to have fun on Sundays. It wasn't okay to have fun. 
even on a Sunday. The only reason you wouldn't be in church, because everybody went, if you, unless you were really sick. And if you were on vacation for the weekend, you sure you, made, you went to church wherever you were worshiping. In fact, one of the churches that I served back in Iowa, there were kids that were trying to get these perfect attendance pins for Sunday school. And you could keep your string going if while you were visiting another church, you, you picked up a bulletin and brought it back with you to prove that you were in church on that Sunday. And you could keep up your perfect attendance. You know what's so sad about that is I saw a lot of kids who had really perfect attendance string for years, but as soon as they became adults, they were gone. We didn't see them in any church any longer. Now, I realize that was kind of us growing up. It's a bit different now, and maybe, maybe we do live in a time when Sunday has come kind of a bit of a free-for-all, but there was a time when Sunday was religiously observed like that. And I just got to remind you, none of that is in the Bible and yet religious people back then often judged you based on whether or not you looked good on Sunday morning instead of whether or not you demonstrated the love of Christ uh, to others. And so we just have to be careful. Don't let religious people guilt you into law orientation. That was Paul's first warning. His second warning was pretty simple too. Don't become a religious person yourself. I mean, don't let somebody else kind of reorientate you and make sure you don't become a religious person yourself. In verses 21 and 22, he says, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Don't do this, don't do that, do this, do that. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Now, you know, it's not that difficult to become a religious person. Because as I've often said before, I really believe religion is the default mode of the human heart. And it's probably that way because religion gives you really the most control over your own destiny, or at least the appearance of it, and it doesn't require that much trust for what Christ did for us. See, basically religion says, if I do the right things, I can be in good standing with God. The problem with that is, folks, the more you trust your good works, uh, the less you're likely to trust Christ. And there's a big difference between your trusting your works and, and trusting Christ. Because really, you know, there are only two possible ways to be saved. There's really just two possible ways to be saved. The first way that you can be saved is, is really simple. It's just law keeping. <laughs> just keep all the laws and keep them perfectly and you can be saved. And like I said before, some people actually like this system because it puts them in charge of their salvation. The Apostle Paul was uh, dealing with this very same issue when he wrote a letter to a church in Galatia, the Galatian letter, and he was coming across people who actually, they would say, hey, I would pick law-keeping. Notice what it says in, in, in chapter 4, verse 21 of Galatians, it says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, people wanted to be under the law, he says, are you aware of what the law says? And here's what it says, you see, in, in this system, uh, the rules are as follows in law-keeping. Keep the commandments, escape the penalty. That's rule number one. Rule number two, break the commandments, suffer the penalty. It's that simple. Keep the commandments, escape the penalty. Break the commandments, suffer the penalty. Now, for people who are, are law keepers, they're rule, rule keepers are kind of like, you know what? I, that's good because I, I try to do a good job keeping the law. Until a verse like James chapter 2, verse 10 comes along and says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of all of it. 
See, somehow in our minds, I, I think we think of goodness and badness kind of like this scale. And I apologize because don't, don't you love how massive my, my illustration is today? It's huge. Sorry, it's so big. Um, it looked big in the picture. And then I ordered it and it's like minuscule. So you're going to have to just put up with that. But a lot of us kind of think of of life is kind of in a balance, we put it in a balance, and all of us know, man, you know, we were going along pretty good, but we messed up something, and we tipped the scale, we did something that was wrong. And so oftentimes what we think is, well, let's just, let's just kind of balance that out a little bit. If I, if I do enough good things, I can kind of balance the scale, and, and, and maybe I can throw on some extra good things and actually even tip it in my favor. The problem with that is, it doesn't matter how little or much sin you've done, the scale is already tipped. It's out of balance. See, the problem with law keeping is that it can't save anyone. It's not gonna save anyone. That's why in Romans chapter three, verse 23, the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, I hope none of you wanna sign up for law keeping. It's not very good. Fortunately, there's another way to be saved and it's by a system called grace. It's the system of grace. And in this system, the rules are completely opposite. Under this system, the rules are keep the commandments, suffer the penalty. And the next rule is break the commandments, escape the penalty. Now that sounds crazy, but think about it. Who was the only person ever in the history of the world to, to completely, perfectly keep the law? It was Jesus. And he suffered the penalty. And then you and I, we can break the commandments and actually escape the penalty. Because Jesus, though he kept the law perfectly and suffered the penalty, in doing so, he took away the power of the law over us. And so you and I have broken the commandments and yet are offered the opportunity to escape the penalty. Remember the word therefore that we talked about? A couple of verses ahead of our text uh, today was Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And, and, and Paul's pretty clear. He says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Now, I think just like there's a problem with law keeping and that it can't save anyone, I think there's a problem with grace too. And the problem with grace, honestly, is that it's, it's just too good to be true. Isn't it? I mean, think about it. We get to break the law and escape the penalty. Jesus kept the law and he had to suffer uh, the penalty. But that's exactly what scripture tells us. In Romans 3.23, remember where it said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It goes on in verse 24 to say, and all, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. So what I wanna do is we kind of wrap stuff up today. I wanna give you three observations and then uh, an application and we'll wrap stuff up today because I wanna make sure we're clear on some things. So the first observation I would wanna make is this. Uh, the law is beneficial for your time here on earth, but it cannot get you into heaven. So if you're wondering, where's the place of the law? The law is beneficial for your time here on earth, but it's not gonna get you into heaven. So let me just be clear. It does matter how you live on this earth. 
Because everything that you do on this earth has consequences, good or bad. And when we step out of the rules that God has placed, establish the guidelines for it, uh, there's going to be consequences for ourselves or for other people. All of our actions bring consequences. And so we, we ought to daily thank God for the order that laws bring to our existence here on this earth. Because, you know, laws are, are simply like boundaries that help us be able to coexist together and not crash into each other. What would it have been like this morning if you drove into the parking lot, there wasn't a single stripe out there, no white, it was just all black, and you could just park anywhere you wanted? I mean, it'd be fun for the first, you know, 10 people that were here. And then the next 20 would still do okay. But after we got about... 200 cars in the parking lot, it would be chaos. And nobody would like it because you wouldn't be getting out of here uh, anytime soon because old Fred parked behind you and he's you know, not leaving for three hours. I mean, it's just, it's that struggle. Um, and it's, it's like the traffic rules that we have today. As much as I despise sitting at a red light when there's nobody around for miles and the light's not gonna change for 20 minutes or so, <laughs> seems like it anyway. I'm thankful when there are cars that there's red and green lights because they, they help us be able to, to live together. And so I, I love what Paul, when he writes to Timothy, his young apprentice, uh, in 1 Timothy 1, notice he says, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. But it's not gonna be used as a way to get to heaven. It's just for us to be able to get along. And then he goes on to say, we also know that the law is not made for righteous people. Law keeper kind of people, they don't really need laws. They're just going to do it naturally. The law is made for, you know, the unrighteous, not for the unrighteous, for the lawbreakers and the rebels, the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and the irreligious. And I stop there. The list actually keeps going on uh, because at least it keeps them in check. And so it's good. But law keeping is never going to get anyone into heaven. That's why in Galatians 3.11, the Bible says clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God. We can't be good enough. The righteous are gonna live by faith. So that's the first observation I would make. The second observation I would make is this. The law doesn't make us righteous. It actually reminds us that we aren't. <laughs> I mean, really, that what the law does is help us know when we get out of line. Uh, for example of that, in, in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, the Apostle Paul writes, he says, you know, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not known what coveting really was if the law has said, you shall not covet. Now let me just ask you, when you hear that law, does that, does that change your behavior, make you righteous at all? In fact, for how many of you, go ahead and raise your hand, how many of you knowing that you're not supposed to covet, uh, how many of you have never coveted before? Anybody here? <laughs> okay, there's a couple liars along with the coveters. No. <laughs> We've looked at something somebody else had and wished we had it. And I was just talking to somebody after the last service, you know, the problem with coveting is what it leads to. That's why God doesn't want us to covet because it leads to all sorts of, in fact, it leads to some of the other 10 commandments. See, rules never made anyone a better person. They might have helped improve their behavior for a period of time, but it's almost always external. It's like the little story I've shared uh, several times where a little boy was acting up one day and mom said, you need to time out and I want you to sit in this chair facing the corner and you have to be there for a half an hour. And so he dutifully went over and sat down, but he didn't really like it. And his mom was walking by one time and he looked back at her and said, hey, mom, I might be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. <laughs> I mean, the rule 
didn't change his heart. It's not what changes our hearts. Rules have never made anyone a better person. Like I said, they may help improve your behavior for a time, but they don't make you a better person. In fact, isn't it true that, that sometimes when someone tells you not to do something, doesn't that make you want to do it even more? <laughs> I mean, don't do that. Okay, now I really want to do that. So the law doesn't make us righteous. It just reminds us that we aren't. The third observation I would make is this. The law doesn't change the heart. Grace does. That's why we want to get away from law and get to grace. Grace is what actually changes the heart. Telling someone they need to act better might alter their behavior for a time, but the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. And the reason grace changes the heart is because grace is the ultimate expression of love. And when you're loved by somebody else, it changes you. And see, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And grace is the game changer. That's why in Titus chapter two, verse 11 and 12, it notes it says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It, grace, is what teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present evil age. See, when grace governs your heart, you'll literally become more godly. When law governs your heart, you're just gonna become more legalistic. I just recently came across an individual, interesting individual by the name of uh, Jefferson Beth Key. Uh, He's a 23-year-old who was catapulted into YouTube limelight when a friend of his recorded uh, him sharing this poem that he had written entitled, Why I Hate Religion, But Love Jesus. And he grew up kind of as a pseudo-Christian, was involved in church a little bit, but it was a struggle. His parents never got married, and so he just grew up with his mom. He and his mom went to church uh, enough to know the rituals and the songs, but he never felt like a church kid. As a teenager, things got really rough. He learned that his mom was gay, and then his life spiraled downhill as he lost himself in alcohol and sex and pornography. He said he'd heard enough sermons to know that Jesus died for him, but he'd also had such a broken and painful life that he figured Jesus probably couldn't help him. Uh, But then he met Christ, and all that changed. And this four-minute video that we're going to watch in just a minute received six million views three days, by three days after it was released several years ago, as well as 64,000 comments, because it resonated with where people were at. It's now been viewed over 31 million times. It's called Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. What if I told you Jesus came to abolish religion? What if I told you voting Republican really wasn't his mission? What if I told you Republican doesn't automatically mean Christian and just because you call some people blind doesn't automatically give you vision? I mean, if religion is so great, why has it started so many wars? Why does it build huge churches but fails to feed the poor? 
tell single moms God doesn't love them if they've ever had a divorce, but in the Old Testament, God actually calls religious people whores. Religion might preach grace, but another thing they practice, tend to ridicule God's people, they did it to John the Baptist. They can't fix their problems and so they just mask it, not realizing religion's like spraying perfume on a casket. See, the problem with religion is it never gets to the core. It's just behavior modification, like a long list of chores. Like, let's dress up the outside, make it look nice and neat. But it's funny, that's what they used to do to mummies while the corpse rots underneath. Now I ain't judging, I'm just saying, quit putting on a fake look. Because there's a problem if people only know that you're a Christian by your Facebook. I mean, in every other aspect of life, you know that logic's unworthy. It's like saying you play for the Lakers just because you bought a jersey. See, this was me too, but no one seemed to be on to me. Acting like a church kid while addicted to pornography. See, on Sunday I'd go to church, but Saturday getting faded acting if I was simply created to just have sex and get wasted. See, I spent my whole life building this facade of neatness, but now that I know Jesus, I boast in my weakness. Because if grace is water, then the church should be an ocean. It's not a museum for good people, it's a hospital for the broken. Which means I don't have to hide my failure, I don't have to hide my sin. Because it doesn't depend on me, it depends on Him. See, because when I was God's enemy, and certainly not a fan, He looked down and said, I want that man. Which is why Jesus hated religion, and for it He called them fools. Don't you see so much better than just following some rules? Now let me clarify. I love the church, I love the Bible, and yes, I believe in sin. But if Jesus came to your church, would they actually let him in? See, remember he was called a glutton and a drunkard by religious men. But the Son of God never supports self-righteousness, not now, not then. Now back to the point, one thing is vital to mention. How Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrums. See, one's the work of God, but one's a man-made invention. See, one is the cure, but the other's the infection. See, because religion says do, Jesus says done. Religion says slave, Jesus says son. Religion puts you in bondage while Jesus sets you free. Religion makes you blind, but Jesus makes you see. And that's why religion and Jesus are two different clans. Religion is man searching for God, Christianity is God searching for man. Which is why salvation is freely mine, and forgiveness is my own not based on my merits, but Jesus' obedience alone. Because he took the crown of thorns and the blood dripped down his face. He took what we all deserve. I guess that's why you call it grace. And while being murdered, he yelled, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Because when he was dangling on that cross, he was thinking of you. And he absorbed all your sin and he buried it in the tomb, which is why I'm kneeling at the cross saying, come on, there's room. So for religion, no, I hate it. In fact, I literally resent it because when Jesus said, it is finished, I believe he meant it. My, my guess would be if Paul lived today, he would have put together something like that to help really communicate his, his dislike of religion and his love of Jesus. I just encourage you, if you have the Kindle app, you can actually uh, down, download a free a sample of his book, uh, Jesus is Greater Than Religion. And just a reminder that today, folks, he is so much better than trying harder, doing more, being good enough. 
And that's exactly what Paul was trying to communicate to those first century Christians and to us is that Jesus alone is what saves us. It's not Jesus and as many good works as I can do. Uh, That's not what saves us. That should be the result of it, but that's not what saves us. It's Jesus and him alone. And so if you're going to be religious about anything, I would just say, let it be about knowing Christ and following him. Now, remember, we kind of self-identified as rebels and rule keepers, and both of us kind of connect with with grace in in a different way. Uh, Those who really have been trying to earn God's acceptance usually fall in the rule keeper category. Those who didn't think there's any hope for them usually land in the rebel uh, category. And rule keepers, just a reminder, When it comes to your salvation, it's not due, it's done. And rebels, when it comes to control, uh, it's about the one who truly is in control, humbling himself on your behalf in order to demonstrate how much he really loves you. And that's why it's just Jesus that saves us and brings us back to that equation we're gonna be looking at throughout this series. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And I want to ask you today, what have you been trying to add to your salvation apart from Christ? Because if there's one point in this message, whether you're a rebel or a rule keeper, it would just be that you and I need Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we already know this can be a challenge to get our minds wrapped around this incredible thought. It was happening 2,000 years ago in a little uh, insignificant city called Colossae, and it happens even today in Colorado Springs where we struggle um, with, really, understanding grace and the place of law in our lives. Father, I would pray for those who might be here today who have struggled thinking maybe they couldn't be good enough uh, to recognize that they really aren't, but Jesus was. And it's his love and it's his grace Uh, that took away our sins and nailed them to the cross so that they could be forgiven and help the rest of us, Father, who have already accepted that grace to continue to live in it and not let ourselves be pushed again ever into religion, but just wanting more of you, trusting more of you, focused more on you than anything else. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.